And this morning we are looking at Romans chapter 15, verse 1 through 7. Again, this is uh, squarely attached to what went before, and yet there are nuances here. I'll bring you up to speed if you were not here uh, two Sundays ago. Paul has now moved in this applicatory section of Romans into uh, making applications of the gospel to the life of the local church. There is one sense in which the apostle is giving applications that are relevant to Christians uh, living together anywhere and everywhere, so that if you met a true believer from Indonesia, you would be called by God to apply the truth of Romans 14, 1 through 23, to your relationship in whatever setting to that individual. But there is a very special sense, and I don't feel like I've highlighted this enough, perhaps, where Paul is writing to a local church. He's writing to the church in Rome, and he's writing to those specific believers who are bound together in that visible body, and he is saying in in that context and in every local church context, there will be weak believers and there will be strong believers. And those who are strong in the faith need to bear with those that are weak in the faith. And those who are weak in the faith don't need to act like they're strong in the faith just because they have strong consciences. Now listen carefully. We said the last time we were together, it is possible to have a conscience that is strong in its preferences and opinions but is not strong in the faith because it is not as fully biblically informed as someone who has a conscience that is fully informed by God's word. And the particular examples that Paul is addressing here to those believers in this congregation is those matters of diet and days. There were some, Paul will say, who um, abstained from eating meat, And notice there in verse 2, they say, and I want to highlight this again, the weak person only eats vegetables. It's one of my favorite new verses that I haven't camped out on enough. If you're a vegetarian, I'm sorry. That's just, it's too easy. He he explicitly says the weak person only eats vegetables. Uh, Because you had Jewish converts who were wrestling with some of the dietary laws that don't carry over from the old covenant, and yet they've been brought to faith in Christ, but they haven't yet come to a full understanding of what their Christian liberty is. And among those, there is also the danger of thinking God still requires us to observe certain feast or festival days. And Paul understands that God doesn't require that in the new covenant, that Christ has fulfilled that. Nevertheless, the job of those who are strong in faith is not to straighten out everybody who's weak in faith. That's what we would do if we wrote this. But Paul says that we are to bear with them. We are to care for them. We are to come alongside them. And he is now developing that even further here in chapter 15. And so we're looking this morning at Romans 15, 1 through 7. And verse 1 is the hinge that connects everything that went before to what follows. He says, now we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good 
to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I don't know if you have ever found yourself in a low point in life where you have been in a position or in a place where you felt hopeless. I have been in that position one time in my Christian life and in ministry. And it is at those times that you realize very quickly who your true friends are. Because they don't want to be around you because they can gain anything from you. They merely want to care for you when you have nothing to offer them. Um, I debated whether or not to be transparent with you, and I will this morning. I found myself in a very difficult place many years ago. Now, many years ago. And wasn't sure what the future held for me and Anna and our family. And Harry Reeder, who is now with Christ, who preached our 50th anniversary, who is arguably one of the greatest pastor theologians of the 20th century now in the annals of church history, uh, reached out to me recurrently. I had nothing to offer Harry at this point. Previous to that, I had published many things for him. I had edited much for him. And Harry invited Anna and me to come and stay with he and Cindy in Birmingham and to worship with them at Briarwood. And, and again, I want to emphasize, I had nothing to offer him at this point in my life or ministry. And, and on that particular Sunday morning, Harry, unbeknownst to me, made Anna and me stand up in front of, I don't know, 3,000 people at Briarwood and, and said, this is my good friend Nick Batzig. I'm so thankful to have him here. I'm so thankful for his ministry. I'm so thankful for his wife, Anna. And it was one of the most humbling and, and unexpected welcomes that I have ever received in my life at a point when I was weakest. Now, why do I tell you that? Because everyone loves to be welcomed. And everyone loves to be welcomed, especially when they're weak. The Apostle Paul knew that. The Lord knows that. And so the Lord, in his wisdom, has breathed out in Romans 14 and into chapter 15 one of the most marvelous portions of Scripture, and yet one that doesn't get the airtime it should. Here, the Apostle is emphasizing that in every local body, in this body, there are going to be weak believers and there are going to be strong believers. And, and the temptation of the strong is to, I'm going to straighten out those weak people and tell them so that they can be strong. And the apostle gives a very nuanced pastoral approach, and he says that we, notice verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to straighten out, nope, not to straighten out, to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. 
And then notice the last verse, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Now, there is a command very similar to the obligation we saw last week. It's almost verbatim. And, and that is there in verse 7, welcome one another. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Now, everything Paul says here in these seven verses really feeds into that great conclusion. And, and it's a call. It's a call that the apostle is making on the lives of every believer, irrespective of where you are spiritually. If you are a true believer and you are strong in the faith, if you are a true believer and you are weak in the faith, if you are a true believer who is weak in the faith but has a strong conscience and thinks it's wrong to eat and drink certain things, this word is for you. If you are strong in the faith and know that you have the liberty to eat whatever you want and drink whatever you want, this word is for you. And yet it is a word in a special way, a very focused way, to the strong. It's a call to selflessly welcome all other believers. It is a call to selflessly welcome all other believers. Here's your three points. One, a call to selflessly welcome other believers. Two, the model of selflessly welcoming other believers. And three, the purpose of selflessly welcoming other believers. The call, the model, the purpose. Notice this. Paul says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, You'll remember if you were here two weeks ago that it is altogether possible and it is usually uh, status quo for individuals to want to elevate non-essential convictions and preferences to essential things. They want to take things that are not necessary unto your salvation and they want to exalt them and elevate them. And then there are others who want to see people doing that, tearing them down, and, and, um, and minimizing uh, their concerns and their need for care. There is a danger here. John Stott has put it so well. He said, we must not elevate non-essentials, especially issues of custom and ceremony. It's sort of preferences, ideophora. Theologians call them ideophora, things indifferent. What kind of instrument you use in worship, how you dress for worship. Those are ideophora things. God doesn't accept you because of those things. If we start to think God accepts me because of my preferences, then we're putting those things in the place of Christ in the gospel. And yet, listen carefully, people do that all the time. Churches do it all the time. The very fact that Paul had to write this is because it was happening there at the inception of the New Covenant Church in Rome. Stott says, we must not elevate non-essentials and custom and ceremony to the level of essentials, and make them a test of orthodoxy and conditions of fellowship. This is so important, y'all, because the better part of churches that fall apart don't fall apart because they're arguing over justification by faith alone. It's because they're arguing over, I'm going to use the M word, y'all, minutia. Somebody told me they didn't know that word, so now you do, minutia. Trivial things, insignificant things, Personal preferences. Well, I like that instrument over this instrument. That helps me worship better than this. That, that's all fine and lovely. It's not biblical. It's a preference, and it can't be elevated to an essential thing. 
Paul is saying with matters of food and drink, among the members of the body, those are things that should never be put in the place of essentials. Now listen, there is a danger. You've got to listen carefully before we really go into this call to selfless welcoming of other believers. There is a danger to hear me say that and then to apply that to fundamental theological truths. We don't want to do that. Paul is going to take away any, any desire you may have to cram theological essentials in there and say it doesn't really matter. Paul has just written the most heavyweight theological exposition in the history of the world to help you understand how much theology matters. But now he comes and he says, now in your interactions with one another, in your different stages of your Christian experience, this is just as important as those things. Now listen, Paul's addressing the strong in particular because the better part of people he's writing to were Gentiles. They didn't have all the Jewish customs. They didn't have the Old Testament adherence. They didn't come out of that culture. And so as they heard the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, as they heard that salvation is in Christ alone, that he's broken down the middle wall of partition, that as the last Adam, he has justified all those who are fallen and under condemnation in the first Adam, as they received the gospel, it was easier for them to say, we can eat whatever meat is offered to idols. We can eat meat. We can drink wine. We, we have Christian liberty. They understood the freedom of the gospel better. And there were more in the church, but there were still some Jewish converts who were coming in. And they were struggling. And so Paul is addressing the strong because they outnumbered the weak. And so notice, he now drives this home. Though he had given a mutual word to both of them, he now drives it home to the strong. And Paul is going to use six verbs in these verses to explain the call. Six verbs. So if you people like grammar, here's your grammar. Six verbs. Super simple. Number one, bear with. Notice that. Notice there in verse one, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, we tend to think Bear with means put up with. That's at least how I usually, well, look, you just got to bear with that person. And what we're really saying is ignore them and just act like they're not causing a problem when they are. <laughs> That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying put up with. Paul's saying get down under and help carry the burden of the weak. Bear it up. Bear it on your shoulders. When I was 24 years old, I weighed a buck 50. And... Um, my boss, I work construction, and my boss made me lift with him a 500-pound beam. Y'all, I don't know how I did it to this day, but it was the heaviest burden on my shoulder going up that ladder. I felt like it was just going to crush me. And burdens are heavy. And we are called to get up under there when we see a weak brother or sister bearing a burden, like not having their conscience fully informed by God's word, and to carry them in that weakness, to carry that burden in, in their weakness. Not to straighten them out, not to tell them what, what, what it is, but to come alongside them and get up under that burden to help them know that you're bearing it with them. Because nothing means so much to other believers than them knowing you are there bearing the burden that they're bearing that you're trying to help them in their moments of weakness, when they've been hurt, when they're going through a fiery trial, 
when they've been put through the ringer by someone else, when they've had their whole world crashing down because of somebody else's sin against them, and you have to get in there and bear up under them. Here Paul says on every level, even matters of diet and days, in the context of the local church, we are to number one, we are to bear. Here's your second one. Notice this. He says in, in the end of verse one, and not to please ourselves. All right, listen. If there is one word in this whole passage that we so desperately need, it's this. You'll notice that I tried to embed this into each point. It's a call to selflessly welcome other believers. Selflessness. Not to please ourselves. Listen to this. Eric Alexander says, the thing which destroys fellowship ultimately is selfish thinking and selfish attitudes and selfish actions. Why aren't they helping me? If they did this, they would think about this and they would do what I want. Well, if they were really this kind of congregation, they would be doing this and thinking, that's selfish. It's literally, when we start doing that, that's selfish. I know better than them. Listen to this. Eric Alexander says the thing that destroys fellowships is selfish thinking, selfish attitudes, selfish actions. This, this not pleasing self simply means that the way the Christian life is to be lived is that I no longer live on the basis of what I want, what suits me or what I would like. Consideration for other people will take precedent over my preferences. What a word. Consideration for other people will take precedent over my preferences. Alexander says only the gospel can stop us from living for ourselves and set us living for Christ and others. Only the gospel can set us not living for self, but living for Christ and others. Isn't that awesome? We're to bear with, we're to please, there in verse 2, not to please ourselves, let us please his neighbor for his good. Notice this, to build up. There's the third verb, to build up. Notice there's almost a progression. Paul is essentially saying, now let's take the first step. We who are strong need to bear with the failings of the weak. Now let's take the next step, not pleasing ourselves, but pleasing others. Now let's take the next step seeking to build them up. And then, ultimately, the apostle does something marvelous. He says, in verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. We are to live in harmony. That's the fourth verb, live in harmony with one another. And then, notice this, that together you may with one voice glorify God. You see, all these things are interconnected. They all go together. They're all the pieces of the puzzle that Paul's putting together. If one of those is missing, if I'm, if I'm not seeking to bear the burden of the weak, I'm not going to be ultimately glorifying God. If I'm, not, if I'm not seeking to please others, but I'm seeking to please myself, I'm not going to live in harmony with others. If I'm not living in harmony with others, I'm not going to be giving God the glory that he deserves for what he's done in welcoming us. And I'm not going to be welcoming others. You see, they're all intricately, logically related to each other. 
and all of them have to be there. Now let me say this this morning. Back in Romans chapter 12, at the beginning of the application section of this letter, the Apostle Paul talked about the use of gifts among the members, that God had given us different gifts, and according to the measure of grace, we're to use them to build up others in the body. And, and one of the things that we saw all the way back in chapter 12 is that God doesn't give me a gift for me. He gives me a gift for you. He gives you a gift for others. He gives us gifts not to spend on ourselves, but to bless and build up others with. Paul is almost returning to this again, saying, if God has graciously given you a strong conscience, if God has made you strong in faith, if the Lord has enabled you to understand your Christian liberty, it's not just so you can be like, I can do whatever, I can drink and eat meat. It's that we would learn to use those things in bearing with others and building others up. It's for the good of others, how we conduct ourselves. Listen to this, John Calvin on this section. John Calvin so helpfully said, as God has destined those he has given superior knowledge to, to convey instruction to the ignorant, so to those he makes strong, he commits the duty of supporting the weak by their strength. What good is it if I have more knowledge, more zeal? I mean, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, if I have all knowledge... If I have all faith, if I have all zeal, and I have not love, and I'm not using these things for the good of others, to build others up, that, that I'm nothing, I'm useless, I'm a, I'm a clanging symbol. You see, God didn't make us strong so we could sit around and make sure everybody knows we're strong. God made us strong so that we could bear with the weak. Isn't that interesting? Calvin says this. He says, he makes strong and commits to the strong the duty of supporting the weak by their strength. Thus, all gifts ought to be communicated among the members of Christ. Now, here's what I want to emphasize. The call, the call to selflessly welcome other believers is a call to constantly be thinking, how can I bear with? How can I please? How can I build up? How can I live in harmony? How can I worship God with? And how can I welcome others in the same body, in a local church? Listen, if this happens, and by the way, I see a lot of this happening in this church and in other churches, and then many that it's not happening in. When this happens, and a local church really gets this, it changes everything. It changes everything. Because I am always thinking about who needs to be built up. I'm always thinking about how I can bless somebody else. I'm always thinking, what does that person right now, how do I speak a word of encouragement? What do they need right now? I'm always thinking about how to please others for their good, for God's glory. Now, thankfully, he gives us a model. And I say thankfully because if we didn't have Christ as the model, we're all in big trouble. Because every one of us likes to excoriate the weak by nature, think that we're further along and they should be where I am. Every one of us is selfish by nature, starting with me. We are all very selfish. Every one of us likes to please ourselves and not others. Every one of us, every one of us fails horribly in 
living in harmony with others? And we'll jump on Facebook and ruin friendships faster than, I don't even know. That's an electric car going to 90, man. They go fast. We will just burn down friendships over ID offer over nothing. Because I'm right. Sorry, I've been doing these voices lately. <laughs> That's what you feel inside when you do that stuff. But thankfully, the Lord gave us the model of himself. And this is amazing. Notice this. Paul does something marvelous in verse 3. He says, For Christ did not please himself. Now, I know some of you and got your 10 talent Christians. There's some 10 talent Christians in this place. But I know that no one had a right to please himself other than the Lord of glory. That Jesus is infinite according to his divine nature that he is very God of very God, that he is the brightness of the Father's glory, that he upholds all things by the word of his power, that he is from all eternity, that he is the eternally and infinitely and almighty, powerful God of the universe. And if anyone had a right to please himself, it was Jesus. And yet Paul says, Christ did not please himself. Now, don't miss this. This is not just a throwaway statement. What Paul's saying is, if I am failing to understand this call in the experience of my life, if I'm, if I'm failing to, to put this into practice in the local church in which God has put me, then I have forgotten the way that the Lord Jesus conducted himself every step of his earthly ministry until he hung on the cross to serve us and to redeem us. Every single thing the Lord Jesus did was to please and build up and edify and bless others, to bear with the weak. For Christ did not please himself. Listen, when he goes into the upper room and he has the apostolic band with him, he's got the disciples there, and he's about to go to the cross and make redemption for us and accomplish redemption. And, and they're there at the meal, and, and you get the sense that Jesus is sort of noticing the basin over there, and none of the disciples are taking it up. Why? Because our inclination is to please self. These are the disciples. Yes, Judas is there, but these are the other disciples who would go on to turn the world upside down through the preaching of the gospel. Not one of them would take up the basin and the towel because they thought it was beneath them. They, they wanted great things. They wanted to be at the top. John, James and John, we want to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left in your glory. And the other disciples got angry because they wanted that. And so what does Jesus do? He rises from supper. He goes over. He takes the towel. He disrobes. He girds himself with the towel. He takes the basin and the towel. And he stoops and he takes the lowest place. And what is Jesus doing? He is showing us what he would do on the cross. He is acting out the parable of what he was going to do on the cross when he would put himself in the lowest place under the wrath of God for your sin and my sin. And there is nothing that Jesus did that shows us that he did not please himself so much as seeing him nailed to the tree for your rebellion and my rebellion. And when a Christian sees that, the only response we can have is, how can I please others? How can I be like my Savior? How can I follow his example? And notice this, Paul says, 
Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, and he quotes Psalm 69.9, takes one verse out, and this is the Lord Jesus speaking to God the Father in that psalm from over a thousand years before he came, Spirit of Christ, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's the pre-incarnate Christ speaking through the psalmist. The reproaches that fell on you, God, fell on me. All the ways that we hated God, all the ways that we rejected God, all the ways we've sinned against God, all the ways we have failed to worship him and live for him and give him thanksgiving and praise and glory, all of those things fell on Jesus on the cross. The reproaches with which you reproached me, they have reproached you, have fallen on me. And then Paul, in verse 4, says, listen, that's in the Old Testament. That has application to the life of your fellowship now. That gospel principle has application for your relationships now. I have been actively pastoring for 16 years, I believe, this year, and I, I can tell you all, every, in every case where someone is seeking to please themselves, someone is causing disruption, somebody's asserting their preferences, somebody's just being just difficult. They've forgotten the gospel. In every case, they've forgotten the gospel. Because when we remember that, there's no room for us not to see the example of the Lord Jesus who served us and redeemed us and sacrificed himself for us and not follow in his example toward others. Um, I like this. John Piper is reflecting here on the gospel principle in verse 3. And he says this. He says, anytime you feel like complaining in a church, um, just include in the complaint the solution. I love this. Anytime you're complaining, well, I don't know. Why are we doing that? And why are we doing this? And why are we doing that? I'm not thinking of anybody in here. I'm just doing the head head voices. Now, anytime we do that, Piper says, always include the solution. What's the solution in the complaint? He says, he says, I don't mean tell me your preferences. He said, everybody tells me their preferences. I know your preferences. I know. You're going to make them clear. It's kind of like, how do you know if somebody's a vegan? Oh, they'll tell you. It's that thing. What's your preferences? Everybody's going to tell you what their preferences are. Piper says, tell me the solution. And the solution is the Lord Jesus humbling himself, hanging on the tree, taking the reproaches with which we reproach God on himself, not pleasing himself so that we would please one another. It's beautiful. That's the solution. Now, number three, what is the purpose that God has in all these things? We've seen the call. There's six verbs, bear with, please, build up, live in harmony, glorify, and welcome. We've seen the model, the Lord Jesus, and now the purpose. Y'all, I rarely come to a portion of scripture that I'm preparing to preach through and think, how have I never seen this verse? And then following hard on that, I rarely ever think, man, that verse should get a whole lot more airtime and should be memorized. And I think, I'm going to put this out here to us, 
and to really encourage us to meditate and reflect on verse 5 and 6. These are such powerful verses. Now Paul does something marvelous before we read them. He goes from giving the exhortation and the example to turning to God in prayer. You know why? Because he knows unless the Lord does it, it's not going to happen. Isn't that interesting? Now he turns to the Lord in prayer for these things. And this is what he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement, patience and comfort, the God of endurance and encouragement, patience, comfort, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a verse. The God who is so patient, so full of encouragements and comfort, so ready to build up, so ready to to build you up when you're down, so ready to bear your weakness as he did when Christ died for you and when he rose for you. And in every act of kindness and mercy, every, every drawing back, every, every enfolding you back into his fold when you've wandered, that God, may that God, he says, may that God grant you to live in such harmony with one another that together you may glorify God. Now, what is he saying? He is essentially saying when that's not happening, we lose the one voice praising God together because we want to complain and assert ourselves. Because I'd rather separate my voice from these voices and I want my voice to be heard. Notice what he says here. He says, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice What an awesome thing to think about a congregation of believers living together in such harmony in Christ, bearing with each other, pleasing each other, thinking about each other, serving each other, that when people see us worshiping, they, they see not many people, but a, a group of people who are so united in harmony that they, they seem like they're speaking in one voice together, praising God. That means, this is so cool, that means that the end of this command is not first and foremost, here's how to keep a local church from falling apart. Certainly a wonderful byproduct, but it is not the end goal. The end goal is that God is worshipped and glorified by a diversity of believers who don't all agree on all the preferences, the strong bearing with the weak, bearing up under their weaknesses, helping them, welcoming them, caring them, so that harmoniously God is receiving greater praise as if from one voice praising him. I've got one more quote for you, John Calvin. God is not truly glorified by us unless the hearts of all agree in giving him praise. That means when our unified praise is, is inhibited, when it's hindered, 
that God is not receiving the maximum praise that he ought to be receiving from a, a local body of blood-bought, Christ-redeemed people. Calvin says this. He says, this one thought of us in unity, praising God, this one thought ought to be sufficient to check the wanton rage for contention and quarreling, which at this day too much possess the minds of many. Y'all, we live in a day of contentions and quarrelings, oftentimes especially among Christians, over preferences, over ideophora, over, well, I think this is better than that. I'd like to see this. Doesn't matter. The end goal for which Christ did not please himself but took the reproaches on him with which we reproach God, is that he might unite us together in his one body so that God might get unified, harmonious praise and glory from us. Now, what a goal that would be. That that's our goal when we go to worship. That's our goal in any discipleship settings. That's our goal in the home. That's the goal of husbands leading their wives spiritually. That's the goal of parents leading their children and, and discipling them, is that when we all come together, we come together, as Paul said, as it were, with one voice, glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice this, Paul summarizes everything in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Um, I want to encourage you as, you as you consider these things this morning that you would ask yourself the question, when I think about my words and actions in this body of believers, among these people, about these people, to other people in this body, whatever it is, am I speaking as one wanting to please myself, get my way, correct others, make sure they all know what I know that they don't know? Or am I seeking not to please myself, but to please and welcome them for their good and God's glory? That's the first question. That's hard. Listen, listen. you're asking yourself that question, hopefully. You haven't tuned me out. If you have, you need to hear that question again. But I'm asking myself that question. It's convicting because we do it so little and we do it so poorly and we fail in so many ways. But here's the good news. God has given us everything in the example of the Lord Jesus. And then we need to direct our minds and hearts and think, how did Christ not please himself, but do what he did for me, for my good, for my edification, for my redemption and the redemption of other believers? What was the welcome he gave me? You know, this is marvelous. In just a minute, we're going to sing, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. It's one of the most beautiful hymns about Christ welcoming us. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. And yet, there is a welcome to Christ. Now, I want you to hear this this morning because there very well may be some people here that have never come to Jesus. You don't know him. You know a lot of doctrine. Never come to him. The Lord Jesus is a Savior who welcomes sinners. He welcomes sinners. Every sinner that comes to him in repentance and faith, he welcomes them. 
Everyone that says, Lord, I hate my sin, you had to bear that on the cross for me. Every sinner that says, I'm weighed down under the grief and the burden of my sin and life and circumstances, and you go to Christ, he welcomes you. Every single one. The most base and the most noble, the most foolish and the wisest. Everyone, because every one of us needs to be welcomed by Christ. And then when we've been welcomed, we need to say to one another, how am I welcoming other believers, irrespective of where they are, in their consciences, weak faith, strong faith? Am I welcoming other believers? I hope as you do those things, you'll be encouraged to purposefully and self-consciously put those things into practice in this body and wherever the Lord takes you. And that collectively, we will more and more look and sound like a congregation that has one voice, and that voice is glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do recognize, Lord, how self-pleasing we can all be, and we thank you this morning that you sent your son into this world not to please himself, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for that, that model, that effective and efficient model of you not pleasing yourself, but pleasing us, taking the reproaches with which we, we reproach God. And, taking that judgment and that wrath for our sins on yourself. And we thank you that you have taught us to bear with one another and to please each other and to build up each other and to glorify you together and to welcome each other and to live in harmony with one another. Lord, would you so do that among us that others looking on at Church Creek Presbyterian would say it seems as if they are a people who with one voice are glorifying, worshiping, and praising God. And so, Lord, please do that. As the Apostle Paul turned to you, we turned to you and asked that you would do that, that you, the God of patience, the God of comfort, would do that for us and among us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.